and I uh, wrote three books together. One of them was uh, published in 1997, Analytical Politics, by Cambridge University Press. That book was translated into four other languages and was used fairly widely as a textbook. And Mel and I were thinking of doing a second edition, and that's why the subtitle of this book is Analytical Politics Revisited. The first edition had been called Analytical Politics. On uh, Sunday, September 5th, 2010, Mel called me up. We talked on the phone. He had discovered that Lewis and Clark, the core of discovery, had used a, uh, had, had held a vote, had tried to decide which course of action to take in the winter of 2005 to 1805-1806. Uh, and uh, he said that they had voted among three alternatives, and I should go and look up to see how they had gone about that, because it's an interesting example of a group trying to use political institutions to choose. And I promised that I would, and as often happens, you know, we said we'd talk again about it soon, but we never did because Mel fell down the stairs at his house the following morning and did not survive the fall. His wife found him, you know, heard thump, 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 comes over and finds him dead. Uh, I did not then work on the book again for quite a while. Uh, two years later, I took the book back up again and ended up writing something quite different. But I do want to credit Mel with much of ended up being the first chapter. I went back to the journals of Lewis and Clark and tried to investigate. His intuition about that was right, and I think it sets up the book in a way that is quite interesting, and it's, it's useful for sort of a general background for the problem of choosing in books. But I ended up picking up a co-author. Let me introduce my son, Kevin Munger, who is, who is a now third-year graduate student at New York University in the political science department. And he's responsible for quite a bit of the, the work on the book, including chapter nine and all of the chapter exercises. So it's kind of a hybrid. This book is an attempt to introduce people to what we know and some of the things we think we know about the technical problems of political science and public choice, but it's also an argument about the way that we might approach the problem of using institutions that are neither market nor justified by the state and yet involve the ability of groups of people to cooperate using something that I would define as politics. Now, I think my definition of politics may be different from the one that we often hear, but that definition of politics and the attempt to direct people who are interested in the liberty movement towards the problem of choosing as society, something that's not market and yet, yet not the state, the independent sector, is what this book is uh, oriented towards trying to introduce. All right, thank you very much. So I, I forgot some, some notes earlier, if you wouldn't mind. Please uh, make sure that your cell phones are off. We're going to ask a few questions uh, between the two of us here, and then we'll throw it open to questions, and we'll have someone uh, with a microphone carrying it around in a moment. So let's, let's start from the beginning here. And this may, be, this may seem like sort of a, I guess, a Kosian question, really. But why do we choose in groups at all? There's a problem that we have 
in society, and I think a lot of economics has missed this problem. A lot of economics has directed itself towards the problem of optimization. So we act as if we're just, as economists, and I'm, my PhD is in economics, we act as if the problem is to optimize the location and use of resources. And Eugen Baumbauwerk, uh, a lot of Austrians would say the way we should think about this is that economics is a social process that we use to discover the value of the resources in the first place. We need to invert the whole process. So if you think about an exchange, there's two people involved. It's social. And it's not clear what the price is going to be. It's not clear whether we're going to exchange at all. We have to negotiate. We have to come up with uh, some rules. And so it struck me, and I have to say I follow in this book the lead of James Buchanan, who won the Nobel Prize in 1986, who introduce, I mean, his definition of public choice, and I know most of you know it, but just briefly let me say his definition of public choice had three parts. The first is methodological individualism. We take people both as a philosophical matter to be autonomous, but we also think of them practically as individual decision makers. And so a group of autonomous people, in order to get them to act as a group, you have to get their consent. The second thing that public choice represents is what Buchanan called behavioral symmetry. So individuals acting in the market have certain motivations and, and certain levels of information. They don't become more moral or smarter when they enter the voting booth or enter political office. They still are basically the same people. It's the third that Buchanan emphasized that this book tries to capture, and that is what Buchanan called politics as exchange. Politics as exchange means that we need to understand the institutions for working together in groups. Let me give an example. So let's suppose that I advertise my services as a roofer, someone who puts on roofs. And Caleb needs a new roof. We agree that I'll put a new roof on his house for $5,000. He gives me $1,000 in advance to go and buy shingles. As soon as I get the $1,000, I do the dance of victory. Ha-ha, I've got your $1,000, I'm not giving it back. Well, unless we have some mechanism for enforcing that contract, he probably wouldn't have given me the $1,000 in, in, in the first place. So some resort to something like coercion to enforce contracts is necessary for liberty. Some ability to be coerced is necessary for liberty. I cannot write binding contracts unless we have some third party to enforce the contract. Now, it doesn't have to be the state. It may be that we hired a big, smart dog. It's not real smart, it's a dog. But a big, smart dog that will bite whoever violates the terms of the contract. So coercion is a part of liberty. Without that, we could not possibly be able to write binding contracts. So let's we'll suppose instead of a new roof, our problem is mosquitoes. So in our neighborhood, there's too many mosquitoes. And we all agree that behind each of our houses, there's some mud holes and some old tires that have water in them. All of us agree that we'll fill in the mud holes as long as the EPA doesn't find out. And we'll get rid of the tires that have water in them that are the place for mosquitoes to grow. And we'll agree that anyone who doesn't do that will be subject to a fine. And we all sign a contract 
that agrees to be subject to coercion if we violate the terms of that agreement. Now, if anybody doesn't, there will probably be almost as many mosquitoes as before. So we have someone go around, and anyone who violates the terms of this contract gets fined. They get punished. But because we give actual consent, that group is able to achieve something that no individual could have achieved, and that is control of mosquitoes. There are many examples, and the Lewis and Clark example, that is all of them choosing a place to stay over the winter of 1805-1806, they had to be able to choose in a group. They couldn't have said, you know, let's split up. We'll all go live separately. They all would have been picked off by hostile Indians, by weather. They couldn't have survived. So social groups, nonprofits, all sorts of groups that constitute themselves by a set of rules oblige themselves either to obey or to be coerced. And so the sort of the, the paradox, I think, is pretty easily resolved. Under some circumstances that involve actual consent, coercion is necessary for liberty. And that's true even for groups, was Buchanan's fundamental insight. So when you speak of, you're using this term, actual consent, so how does the, the concept of actual consent inform the notion of politics that you describe in the book? And how does that differ from typical notions of politics? Well, the, the usual notion of politics that we have is a mythological or maybe just tacit consent to something called a social contract. Mm -hmm. And I have to give Jean-Jacques Rousseau credit. He asked a really great question in the, the, his book, The Social Contract, he said, how can a man be both free and yet bound by wills not his own? How can a man be both free and yet bound by wills not his own? That's a terrific question. Now, I think his answer went completely off the tracks. In his answer, he conjured a genie called the general will. And the general will was what the group of people actually wanted. And then the group of people would use voting procedures to figure out what that was, and they would do it more or less perfectly. And anyone who disagreed with what the group decided was guilty of treason. Because what it means for the group to decide what the general will is, if I, if I disagree, I am mistaken. Which, so if I resist, I'll be sent either to a prison camp or an insane asylum, and the distinction is hard to, to, to make. But still, Rousseau's question, how can, a group, how can a man be both free and yet bound by wills not his own, is correct. The way that a group of people solve this problem is we know that we may disagree about outcomes. We know that we may disagree about outcomes. So what do we decide on? We can come up with an agreement on rules. So Buchanan's claim is people choosing in groups don't choose outcomes. People choosing in groups, in groups choose rules. But then you are bound to accept the outcome so long as the rules are followed. That's what politics means. What politics means is a group of people discuss, argue, follow the rules, and then make a decision. I am bound to accept the outcome because I agreed with the rules. But it requires actual consent. It requires an actual contractual agreement. So groups that constitute themselves, a club. Uh, Buchanan famously came up with clubs theory. So the private pools, private tennis clubs, they have rules that govern whether or not, this, uh, what, what do you have to dress? So Wimbledon in, in uh, London, 
is a private club and they have rules for how you can dress. There were several people this past week, I was in London and Wimbledon was going on, some players actually had to go change their clothes. They didn't agree with that, but the rule was, in order to play here, this is what you have to do. If you don't agree with it, you can go play somewhere else. So what I mean by politics is we choose a set of rules, we have to accept the outcome so long as the rules are followed. That coercive understanding that I accept the outcome is actually necessary for me to be able to participate in the group in the first place. So I'm, you remind me of a situation that I've often found myself in, I'm sure you have, which is where you're splitting a sandwich and the rule is I cut, you pick, or vice versa. It's self-reinforcing. It, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It encourages everybody to essentially uh, deal fairly and uh, you can use it over and over and over again. But that's a one-time thing. For the purposes of getting to that end, the group only exists for the, for the length of time of that transaction. So if you're talking about a politics that requires uh, some sort of affirmative consent, um, what does that mean for a state? What does that mean for governments that have existed long before any of us have existed and yet demands that we obey the laws that, that we didn't sign up for? I think that's the thing that's sort of unsatisfying about this analysis because my claims, which rest on actual rather than tacit consent, don't tell us much about our obligations of the state or the political authority that the state has over us. So this book, in a way, is kind of agnostic about that. What it does offer is some ways, it's a, a, the technical parts of it are a way of representing individual preferences and to try to simulate how it is that a group of people might make a decision. So if, if you're a committee, uh, if you're the U.S. Congress, how might this group choose a set of rules and then make decisions? The, the, the obligations and the justification of a state is something bigger because it's larger. So if you're a congressional committee, we would choose a set of rules, we can change those rules, but I can't say at the end I don't like the outcome, so I refuse to accept it. Your question about the authority of the state, I think this, this book, this approach is agnostic about. I don't think we can justify states with actual consent because people have not consented. And another condition is uh, being able to secede, being able to leave, and that's not something that states are very good at either. Whereas if I, if I live in a neighborhood and I don't agree what, with what the neighborhood association has done, I can sell my house and go somewhere else. If I move in and I know of the rules that the neighborhood association has, I'm implicitly accepting those, but that's because I had other alternative choices. So that the problem of tacit consent is one that David Hume famously addressed and he said this sort of social contract arrangement, this idea that by living in a country, I am consenting to its laws, is like saying I was blindfolded and dragged, against, dragged onto a ship against my will, and we get 100 leagues out to sea, and you say, well, you're either bound by the captain's rules or you can jump overboard. Well, I can't swim through 100 leagues of shark-infested water. But that doesn't mean that I consented to the captain's rules. I can't use my consent then as a justification for political authority. What are the other justifications we might use for political authority? My approach doesn't say anything about that. It's not clear you can justify political authority. I'm not saying you can't, but it, it, I don't think you can justify political authority with actual consent unless people have a, a, a fairly easy way 
to leave, to secede, and take their belongings with them. So you also point out that uh, in the example that you use with Lewis and Clark, that the fact that this group was operating not as a dictatorship for some time period when trying to arrive at this very important decision, what are what do you view as the most important uses of uh, choosing in groups, and what what are the what are the things that a politics with consent can produce that maybe markets can't? One of the things that we rely on institutions to do is to help groups of people capture the gains from cooperation and specialization. Now, there are some settings, and we call them markets, where the exchange of money and commodities and services actually pretty well work pretty well on a bilateral basis, or maybe something that's larger, where we have a contract where we all work for the same corporation. But there are many kinds of provisions of public goods or memberships in an organization like a city where each of us is acting as an equal and within it we're, we, we each are having certain rights that we're hoping to be able to take advantage of memberships of being in the city, being in a tennis club, something like that. We are relying on the group to provide us with certain benefits from that kind of cooperation. If the members, the other members of the group try to exploit us by changing the rules, either we can reject the change in the rules we didn't consent to, or we can leave the group without having to forfeit all of the wealth and belongings that we have. So the, 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 the question that you ask is a difficult one. Lewis and Clark were, the reason we use this example, Lewis and Clark were a military unit. And throughout the time that Lewis and Clark had been the leaders of this military unit, if someone had acted against their authority or had failed in their obligations as a, as a member of a military unit, they were punished. One guy received 100 lashes on his bare back, divided into four groups of 25. It almost killed him. But that's because he had fallen asleep on watch, which is something that normally might be punished by execution. So if anything, they were showing clemency by only giving him 100 lashes. So what's interesting is that in this instance, in deciding where to spend this winter, Lewis and Clark, the captains, suspended their normal military authority and asked the members of the Corps of Discovery to vote. Why? Why would they do that? There's two usual explanations that were given, and I think this gets to the, the core of your answer for why we would want to do this in the first place, rather than just have a hierarchy. And those two things are first, information. Now, we think of markets as being a way of generating prices that provide information about relative scarcities. But there's some circumstances where property rights are not specified in such a way that prices can give us that discovery process. Voting is a discovery process. Voting is a, dis is a political discovery process that's analogous to and in some circumstances superior to, and that's why people use it, that sort of collective decision making can under some circumstances be quite useful. And so the, 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 there have been writings about the wisdom of crowds and the example that we use in the book that some of you may remember in the uh, game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? Which was the most useful, the best of the lifelines? Well, the best of the lifelines was ask the audience. And remember, these were people who had stood in line for four hours 
to sit in the audience of a television show that they could have seen better if they'd stayed home and watched on TV. So these are not necessarily society's winners. <laughs> but if you asked which of these four alternatives is the best, almost always the largest plurality of these not society's winners were correct. Is it A, B, C, or D? Is that the right answer? Well, as a group, they were better than choosing any one of the individuals would have been by themselves. So Lewis and Clark were trying to get all the information they could about a difficult decision where it wasn't clear what the right choice was, but the consequences of being wrong would have been catastrophic. They all would have died. The second is legitimacy. If we feel like we've all had a voice and it turns out that I get to say, no, no, I think we should live on the, we should stay on the north side of the river. And other people feel my, hear my argument. I have a full and fair chance to persuade them, and yet they are not persuaded. I'm much more likely to accept the outcome as being one that I support than if it was just imposed and I never even had a chance to give voice to what my objections were. So information and legitimacy are the way that we often choose in groups using politics. And that I would say, the, it's a, it's a Kosian argument again. I'm not sure that you could predict ex ante that it's as useful as it turns out to be, but that's the way almost all groups choose, and the ones that choose that way and that follow the, root, follow the rules give people the impression that the following of the rules is important, that it has this kind of moral force on its own, are more likely to survive and succeed. All right, if uh, anybody who is watching or listening to this program live has a question, you can uh, use the hashtag choosing in groups, and I'll try to get to several of those. And if anybody here has a question, just raise your hand, and uh, we'll try to bring some questions. Trevor Burris, first question. Hi, Trevor Burris from the Cato Institute. I was wondering if you could talk about the relative merits of <clears throat> different methods of preference aggregation between voting and possibly markets and maybe other types of preference aggregation, which what, what their strengths and weaknesses are? Markets are a great mechanism for preference aggregation where each of us can choose a different mix of the services that are being offered. Politics is probably the only way for using a discovery process for preference aggregation in a circumstance where we can only choose one. So we have only one policy on abortion. We have only one speed limit on a road. Now, I suppose you could imagine that this, we, people could bid for what speed limits they were going to go, and if you wanted to go really fast, you could pay more, but you'd probably want segregated roads for that. So. Um, Let's suppose that in some community, you, you live in a community and you say, we'd like to have a speed limit. They're, they're, people are driving too fast. And we meet up and we say, you know, that's right. All of us think we should have a speed limit. Let's do this. We will, because it's politics, we'll have a committee go study it. They'll make some recommendations and then we'll vote that, uh, the recommendation of the committee against any amendments anybody else wants to make and then we'll make the final decision by majority rule. And whatever we decide, that will be the will of our group. Now, the will of our group doesn't have to have any special moral force, it's just what we decided. But if we decide the speed limit is 40 miles per hour, I will not have the defense when the police pull me over of saying, you know, I didn't agree to this, I, I wanted 60. In the committee, I argued for 60, and I, I was unable to persuade anybody. But I would like to have a, a special separate speed limit for myself. 
well, we all agreed there should be a speed limit, and we all agreed that there would be a rule by which we would decide which one it was that we wanted. So am I unfree because I am bound by wills that are not my own? No, because in this case, we, we specified a, a result that we wanted, which is choose a speed limit, and a set of rules, which was use something like majority rule. So politics are for those decision contexts where we, we have to make one choice out of many alternatives. And we're going to use a set of rules, like Robert's Rules of Order. Ro uh, Captain Rocket, later Major Robert, described the, the goal of Robert's Rules of Order. Robert's Rules of Order is to make sure that the majority gets its way and the minority gets its say. So you're not able to prevent anybody from being able to offer information and arguments where everybody gets to persuade, but ultimately we're able to make a decision. We're not so locked up that we can say, look, we can't choose. Because we're, we're almost always worse off not being able to make a choice at all. Right behind this gentleman, there you go. I'm Bob Hershey, I'm a consultant. Uh, have you been able to use your methods for group decisions over the internet? I am a, uh, I'm on a board of advisors of a startup in San Diego called Empower. And we're, we're having a conference on just that subject in uh, October. So it's Empower without the second E, E-M-P-O-W-R. And they have about 100,000 members, and they're trying to write a constitution. And these are people mostly not in the United States. Empower is kind of a combination of eBay and Facebook. So it's a way of auctioning stuff off, but they also can use advertising. If you like, if you like somebody else's product and somebody ends up buying it because they click through from your site, you get a tiny percentage of it. So they're trying to decide on rules to govern themselves. And people can leave Empower just by closing out their account. And so I, I absolutely am trying this. It's, it's a very frustrating thing to try, but the, this, it, thinking of this as an information and preference aggregation mechanism is the right thing to do. And since we're talking about rules, we're choosing rules, not outcomes. Politics is the only way for us to approach this. So it's a very interesting question. I'm trying it. It's really difficult. But we're trying to choose rules, not outcomes. And that's why this method and not markets is the, is the way we have to go. Hi, Phil Wallach, Brookings Institution. Hey, uh, Philip. Uh, can you talk about people's desire to avoid the costs of thinking about decisions and the representative decision-making bodies that they choose? Um, I have in mind, I, I've moved into a co-op apartment building a year ago and became the vice president of the board uh, just by showing up to the meetings. Because there, uh, there were two of you, the other was the president? There, it's a 58-unit building, uh, but people, that's just big enough that people kind of think of it as a little mini town that they would prefer to have the council make their decisions. Nobody can be bothered to, to, to really weigh in. And so I'm, I'm wondering how you think of people's desire to push off decision costs on others and how that fits in. 
I was prepared to answer your question by saying what we need is to have smaller groups. And so, uh, but your example is a perfect one. That's a pretty small group. It's just that they would prefer not to be bothered. Um, let me say two things. One is politics, when it's working well, should be boring because it's not so controversial that we feel like everything is at stake. I worked as a consultant in the 1989 Chilean presidential elections, which was the first one after the coup in 1973. And in 1989, I walked the streets of Santiago, and it was just empty because the presidential debates were on TV. And I remember thinking to myself, I hope I never live in a society where politics is this important, because they were obsessed. So it may not be that good a thing to be obsessed about politics either. The United States now is so polarized and there's so much at stake from these elections that I might prefer that people were bored. Nonetheless, if what we want to do is talk about the quality of the decision being garbage in, garbage out, if we don't have good information coming in and I'm making these claims that it's an information aggregation mechanism, I think that's going to hurt the quality of the decisions. But it must mean that people are mostly satisfied or else they trust you as vice president. You're a fine looking fellow. They look at you and say, this guy could lead us. We'd like to delegate that. Well, but the second thing is that it's the nature of political choice that it's very tempting for me to free ride and to use heuristics. And that means that we should be very skeptical about just assuming that political choice is going to have the same good properties that market choice might have. If you ask me, what do I want for lunch, and I get to order from a menu, I'm probably going to think about it and pick what I actually want for lunch. If we're going to vote on what we have for lunch, then I know that one out of 60 votes isn't going to matter very much, and I'm certainly not going to spend much time studying it. So I think we ought to be a little bit more humble about deciding to use politics. On, but in, the, in, in your example, it, it's a terrific one. I don't know how you can make people want to care except to threaten them with really bad policies. Maybe you can try that. Down front here. Uh, come back to James Buchanan. And uh, as I understood it, he goes back to Knut Wicksell who said majority rule is inefficient and unfair, basically inefficient and unfair. But at the same time, you, I mean, uni, uh, 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 unity of, of, vo of voice would be the way to, to solve all problems, but you're never going to get agreement in full. How, where do you come out on how do you deal with this uh, inefficiency of the majority or majoritarian dictatorship? How do you protect the minority? Well, the, James Buchanan, it was, this was in 1946. He had just come back from the war. He had finished his dissertation, was waiting to defend it, and uh, had had to learn German as a condition for finishing his PhD at the University of Chicago. Found this slender little volume by Newt Vixell, read it, and in it Vixell trumpeted the value of unanimity because you can always have a violation of someone's consent so long as you don't require unanimous rule. Whereas if you insist on unanimous consent on everything, it means that everything is truly voluntary. Well, Buchanan looked at that and said, that's true, but then we could never do anything. So the examples of the Polish legislature that required unanimity, they were always completely locked up. It's very difficult to find unanimous consent rules that actually work. So what Buchanan did was take Vixell's insight and say what we need is unanimity at the level 
of choice of rules, of the choice of the Constitution. After that, you can use majority rule. So the, 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 I'm trying to follow exactly Buchanan's Vixellian synthesis, where we, we, we have to get actual consent at the level of rules. But after that, if, if what we've done is decide to choose by majority rule, we've protected people because they've chosen, they've actually consented to the rules before that. So what Buchanan's objection would be to most kind of, of political choice that we find ourselves in by the state is we didn't actually consent to the rules. So Buchanan was a federalist. He wanted to have decision-making power devolve down to the level where the size of the externality or the size of the public good that was being considered corresponded to the size of the polity. And Vincent Ostrom was another famous person who analyzed this problem. So Buchanan and Ostrom, I mean, the, the answer to your question is long, but the, the, I think the insights of Buchanan and Ostrom would say, we have unanimity at the, at the level of rules, which avoids some of the problems of, having, uh, of, of, of capturing what Vixell wanted. And we should have the size of the polity match with the size of the public good that's being provided, which means we need more power to states, more power, more power to counties, municipalities, local levels, rather than this movement up towards concentration at the federal level, which has more to do with power than it does the, the, the value that we would get from actual consent. Related to that, as we were talking before we uh, came in here today, when you read Buchanan and Tulloch from uh, the early mid '60s, and then you read the Constitution and what went into that, it's 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 almost breathtaking how uh, Madison and others were trying to solve a practical problem that uh, Buchanan and Tulloch were trying to solve in theory uh, more than a hundred years later. Well, and I would say that in some ways the framers of the Constitution, the second time around, did solve a lot of institutional problems the importance of which we didn't understand until more than 250 years later. Now, what's interesting is that the founders solved in practice problems that we later only recognized in theory. So you're asking, you know, why are political scientists saying, oh, here's why this works 250 years later. The reason that is important is that it's easy for us to forget how important certain institutional arrangements are. They seem like innocuous details, but in fact, they may be some of the things that protect our freedoms. And so the, 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 what you'd compare this with, and Edmund Burke explicitly talked about this in Reflections on the Revolution in France, compare this to the kind of project of reason that you get from the French Revolution. Let's just assume we don't need institutions. We'll all sit down together and we'll be able to figure this out. Well, it took us 250 years to realize why the U.S. Constitution worked in the particular way that it did. What Buchanan and Tulloch did, and some of the later work on constitutions did, was to show why this, and not some other set of institutions, had a sort of interlocking way of both protecting freedoms and encouraging people to be able to make decisions that allow them to capture the gains from cooperation. So there's a, a, a paper in the Stanford Law Review um, that about Article One, Section 8 by uh, Cooter and Siegel, which I think is just a, a, a brilliant piece. It interprets Article I, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution as the set of things the federal government should be allowed to do is to help individuals and states capture gains from cooperation, ways of solving collective action problems. And people are going to figure that out. So rather than the state saying, here's what you should do, 
the, the, the federal government should just be operating an architecture within which individuals can figure out how to solve collective action problems. So that's something that actually Article 1, Section 8 used to do pretty well. But the expansion of federal powers under the Elastic Clause has gotten rid of many of what would have been the benefits of the original conception. So by failing to understand the way that the original structure worked, we have expanded federal powers far beyond what's necessary. And in fact, what even was helpful for allowing individuals to come up with new ways of solving collective action problems. We're worse off than we were. Questions here, right here, and then right over here. Yeah, my name is Li Yang. I just wonder, according to what you say, it's rule and outcome. If the rule is, let's say, constitution, and outcome is liberty and justice. Now, even the Republican, they would think constitution only a piece of paper, and you can disregard everything they say. And uh, if you think about a uh, non-registered voter, not only they don't want to register, they don't want to vote, so they don't think the Democrat or GOP represent them at all. So if they think they are violated our constitution, they are supposed to be prosecuted. So what do you think in our society, what's the approach we have to reform this, make it really work? Because uh, now, whatever you propose, they don't care. And now you are talking about Trump, they, they just, uh, but just uh, so slam everybody else. Okay, so, so what, what, they, they, what do you the credibility of recommend? rules when human beings must apply them? It, it, it's a great question. It's something we don't understand very well. So the, the, the good thing about the question is that it calls into question the sort of naive faith that many political scientists, lawyers, and legislators, and regulators have in if we write down this rule, people will follow it. And if people disagree with it, or maybe they just don't know much about it, will it have any legitimacy? The, the, the problem that we had in the United States was that a number of the things that seemed like guarantees in the Constitution were not taken very seriously, and then at some point they started to become institutionalized. We can choose rules, but ultimately what we need is a society where people follow the rules because they believe that, th that the set of rules actually improves the way that they can live their lives. They have the, the sort of uh, Burkean notion of conservatism was that, and this is uh, Friedrich Hayek also, the, what, what Hayek called laws is very different from legislation. Laws are things that are traditions that we know work as ways of organizing our, our lives. Legislation is p things that we wrote down on a piece of paper that we expect people to obey. Now, with enough police protection or enough police interference, we can enforce even those things that are written down. But we're much better off if people follow them because they believe that they're the right things to do. The question is, where does that come from? Where does that belief come from? It partly believes, it partly comes from my belief that this is a fair way of enforcing rules. And it partly comes from my belief that everyone else is following them also. So the, the problem is that institutions are hard, but they're brittle. When they break, they shatter like glass. So if, if we're standing in line, if a group of us are standing in line and one person butts in line, we may all yell at them. But if seven, eight people butt in line, it just becomes a mob. 
So the same people who used to stand in line now say, well, nobody else is standing in line, so I'm going to ignore that rule also. Even if it's written down that you're supposed to stand in line, it's very difficult to, to enforce that rule. So we need rules that are largely self-enforcing because people believe that they're going to be fairly enforced, and we internalize them. So uh, uh, Jeffrey Brennan and James Buchanan had a book called Reason and Rules, where they made this kind of argument. And the question is, if in the United States we're constantly changing the rules and ignoring for momentary political advantage from either party what seem like kind of bedrock principles, then we end up not having really believing in anything. So it's not that we're going to move to a new set of rules. We'll have a sort of an, an anarchy where no rules at all are enforceable because it's much too difficult to use formal enforcement. As I understand, uh, Kim Linnitz, I'm an attorney. As I understand what you're saying, that in order for the group to be accepting of the outcome, they have to, uh, that the rules have to be followed. So what impact when those who are enforcing the rules are providing exceptions to the rules for certain people, what impact does that have not only on that rule, but also on the quality of the decision making for that group in the future? It's disastrous. I mean, the, your, your question answers itself, as I suspect you knew. So the, my belief in the legitimacy of the outcome depends on the rules actually being followed and my having to consented to them. So if we give dispensations, and I, so the, one of the reasons that there was Martin Luther was that the Catholic Church would sell exceptions to the rules called dispensations. Yes, you committed a mortal sin, but if you give us this much money, we'll make sure you get into heaven. We'll put in a word with the big guy. If that's the way that we run the political system, then we end up with just a rent-seeking contest where none of the rules are really very, taken very seriously. What we're looking at instead is how can I buy an exception? And I think we have a perfect example of the corporate income tax. The United States has an extraordinarily high corporate income tax. Nobody pays it. They all buy a dispensation, but they do it industry by industry. My industry pays the, the, the appropriate committee chairs, and they give me a dispensation which means that anybody who actually pays the full bill is a chump. The, the compliance costs of that are enormous. You're getting rid of the social capital that we accumulated over centuries of trying to follow the rules. It doesn't easily come back. So like I said, institutions are hard, but when they break, they shatter like glass. They don't just come back. So the, 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 the sense that I think many of us have that we're losing the sense of fair play and that the rule applies to everyone is a catastrophe. All right, this gentleman here. Hi, I'm uh, John Call with the Edison Electric Institute. And your talk about uh, social contract and processes versus outcomes, it just, I couldn't help but think of John Rawls and his theory of justice and the idea of putting people together in a room and coming up with the rules for a society. Uh, the trick being actually that they have information hidden from them, which is where they'll be in the society when they're making the rules. And of course, um, Robert Nozick wrote a, a brilliant uh, rebuttal in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, a libertarian rebuttal. So I'm just curious, have you ever addressed the whole Rawls versus Nozick uh, debate in your writings? In this book, in fact, I <coughs> do a minor piece of intellectual history that makes me far prouder than I should be, but that's the way that I am. Rawls 
talked about the original position. So we, we go into a room and we say what the rules should be, but we don't know what our position will be in the world of realized institutions outside of there. And uh, John Tomasi had looked at that and said that actually some people had said that before, so that's not the original position, that's the unoriginal position. He's actually copying them. I think the first instance of that was in uh, Montesquieu, the, the French philosopher in the 18th century. He gave an example of slavery. So he said, suppose we were going to try to justify the institution of slavery. Well, let's all go into a room and we don't know whether we will be slaves or masters when we come out of the room. Now, if we decide we want that institution, then, we'll, uh, th then we could argue for it. But you wouldn't know until you leave the room whether you're going to become the slave or the master. What I think is the problem with Rawls is that we... Rawls tried to justify justice as fairness, but in fact, the people who use Rawls as a way of guiding their political beliefs tend to look at the ex post distribution of power and wealth and say, well, now we have to redistribute precisely because they know they're on the lower end of the scale. So I actually run an experiment, and this is, I'm a bad person. I make, I make students feel bad about themselves. North Carolina is one of those states that has a state, mon state monopoly on lottery tickets. And so this is as close as I can approximate the veil of ignorance. People are in the original position. I buy 150 lottery tickets and I hand them out to my students and I say, don't scratch them off yet. And I enlist the aid of a confederate and I have one of the students pretend to win $10,000. Now I know that that's going to happen. So I say here in advance, before any of you scratch off your tickets, we have to decide how we're going to distribute the winnings. And so I say, should each person get to keep their own lottery ticket, whatever they, whatever they have, or should all of you scratch off your lottery tickets, we'll put them all together, and then divide and split up the winnings equally, one over N. They almost always say, no, we'll each keep our own lottery tickets. That's crazy. And then we do it, and the one young woman in the back stands up and screams, I won $10,000. And some person down on the front says, can we revote? So the problem with the Rawlsian approach is it's precisely the ones who want redistribution who recognize that envy, which they call social justice, will be the mechanism that they're going to try to use to justify that redistribution. It's precisely because they have that knowledge. Now, I think there's other perfectly good reasons to argue for a social safety net. I've, I have a... Uh, the most recent independent review, I argued for basic income. There's other reasons why you might argue for those things, but the, the Rawlsian difference principle is actually perverse. People actually will say, once they found out who won the lottery, now let's redistribute. All right. John Samples. Hi, John. Hi, Mike. It's on. Um, so, Mike, uh, your work in public choice and in this book uh, did it help you in your bid for, to become governor of North Carolina? Why are you all? bringing up old stuff, sweetie? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I ran for governor in 2008 as a libertarian. I did not win. Um, I came in third, in fact. Uh, I got 2.8%. I was in four debates with the televi with the, four televised debates with the Democrat and Republican candidates. A very interesting experience. Um, I would say more that that helped me write this. My experience running for governor 
helped me understand what it is that voters mostly want. And several of you have said that voters don't have much information. I think that's right. What I concluded voters mostly wanted was to know if they would let you watch their cats. So they, don't, they knew almost nothing about policy. What they wanted to know is, looking in this person's eyes, would I trust him enough to come in, change the cat litter, feed the cat, not kick it over the couch? Uh, maybe not watch their kids, but do they have some sort of basic human connection? And then they have a couple of issues that they cared about. But elections don't seem very much to be about issues. They're much more about establishing some kind of personal connection. And frankly, that's pretty easy to do if you have $17 million. The woman who won, Bev Perdue, had $17 million. I characterized, unfortunately, on an open mic once, um, one of her ads appeared to have been designed to show that she had once been a child and later had a series of unfortunate haircuts. <laughs> because, you know, it was just her over her life. It was completely content-free, but it, it was an ad that said, this woman can watch your cats. I, I ran for office in California as independent and won in a small city, and I think you're lucky you lost. I now teach at American University, and my name's Scott Talon. In the past couple years, I've become increasingly unsettled with how I operate in class with groups. Pretty much just, you know, whoever you're sitting next to, it'll be a group of five or 10. And this has been really helpful to develop some sort of process. But what I want to ask you, is there an optimal or rough range of uh, uh, optimal range for group size in academia for students? If the people don't already know each other, I, I surely know more than five. It, it's just too difficult for them to be able to have any kind of discussion. Um, when I was chair, I was chair of a group of 35 faculty who knew each other really well. And we had, I don't really believe in democracy as a way of revealing morality. And so we would have endless meetings where I made sure that everybody had their say. And one of the things that I noticed was that even people who lost felt perfectly happy about having lost because they felt like they'd had their say. So in, if, it's a, if it's a student group, relatively small. If it's a larger group, you have to spend the extra time, even though in equilibrium it's completely a waste of time, just because people have a sense of having been heard. That gives them more of, of an ownership in the process. They feel like the rules were followed, and we don't have the problem where you're selling dispensations. So we have, we have rule of law, except this one person is my favorite. I'm going to treat differently. Everybody gets their say. No one gets cut off. So the, the, the larger the group, it's probably true that we end up wasting more time. It's more frustrating. But it, it's worth it in order to preserve that, that sense of community. So the, so many of my faculty would say, I wish everybody else would talk less so that I could talk. Yeah. Five this gentleman in the back here. Uh, my name is Stephen. I happen to listen to your example about the lottery, but it's occurred to me that anyone who with the slightest knowledge of statistics would at the outset uh, say, let's divide the winnings among us all equally because that's a, a higher expected value than uh, hoping that one, one gets lucky and has the single winning ticket. It depends on your risk preferences. You're right, the expected value is higher. The median value is higher, but they actually, their risk preferences are, I, that's why people buy lottery tickets in the first place. 
So everybody has risk preferences. And maybe you haven't read Rawls, and it's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. What Rawls said is everyone's risk averse. And so everyone will always try to avoid risk. And in fact, people often choose risk, which actually calls all of Rawls's conclusions into question. And so you're right, anybody who knows about statistics and they're either risk neutral or risk averse would choose that. It just turns out most people are risk loving. That's why we have lotteries in the first place. But it's a good point that that expected value would appear to indicate you should always divide it equally. But that's, that's the way lotteries work, so that you go down to your church and we're going to have a lottery and give away these golf clubs. People buy lottery tickets knowing there's only going to be one winner, and they still buy the lottery ticket. All right, any other questions for Mike Munger? These two gentlemen in turn here, and then we'll wrap up. How do you directly address the issue of concentrated benefit distributed costs because i mean just citizens united i mean there are lots of different ways of rephrasing it there's a lot of things that we do politically as a state that end up being a net reduction in welfare so the sugar quota uh, it benefits a relatively small number of people in a couple of important states, and it harms almost everyone by making sugar more expensive. But it makes sugar more expensive by a dollar or two per year, whereas the people whose livelihoods depend on it. So that's a problem of politics at the state level, where you're, you're buying policy. The, that's more like the, 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 the dispensations that I was talking about before. The, the Buchanan and also the Hayek principle for this would be universalism. So the way to solve it is, sure, it's fine. You can subsidize somebody if you want. But if you're going to subsidize anybody, you've got to subsidize everybody. Well, subsidizing everybody would get rid. That's basically we collect taxes and we give them back out. There's no benefit then. You get around the concentrated benefits. So the, the Hayekian principle, and there was a, a book by Jim Buchanan and Roger Congleton called Politics by Principle, Not Interest, where they tried to take exactly that principle and then weave it into uh, legislative politics. It's fanciful. It couldn't actually happen. But it's interesting because it illustrates the problem that you're talking about. In the absence of something like that, Politics is going to be rife with a bunch of special interests set aside to such an extent that we'd actually be better off not doing it at all. All of us are paying so many little nickel and dime costs like this, we'd be better off not, pay, not playing at all. I need to just get closure. So what were the uh, three alternatives for Lewis and Clark, and, and was the winning proposal one that was championed by either Lewis or Clark? There's a book you can buy and find this out. <laughs> um, the, the, the three alternatives were stay on the south side of the uh, Columbia, stay on the north side of the Columbia, or go back upriver to uh, the foothills of the mountains and spend the winter there. 
And interestingly, the vote was almost evenly split. That's one of the reasons the example is so great. There's more than two alternatives. And in the book, we talk about the possibility that there was actually no majority and maybe even cycling majorities. We had originally thought about doing a simulation where there were cycling majorities, but it, it's really kind of a distraction. Um, the, the, the thing is that it looks like it's at least possible that the, if you had voted pairwise among the three, you would have gotten rock, scissors, paper. Each of them would have defeated one of the other. And it may not have been that the choice that they made was the correct one. So if, if, if you try to choose among more than two alternatives with more than three choosers and you have disagreement, you may get what political scientists call chaos. And this is something I'm not sure why it's not taught in high school. It really impeaches the existence of a determinate democratic choice. It means that de democracy may be radically indeterminate. So you get information, but if people disagree, what you find out is there's an indeterminacy in the rules. Another way of saying that is that the outcome is determined by the rules, not the preferences. The outcome is determined by the rules, not the preferences. You're not actually finding out what, it, what the people want. You're just finding out what it is that the rules dictate. Now, that's okay if you have to pick one. We have to pick one here. We can't just argue about this forever. But the, the, it, there's, it's a fascinating example of, of a potential indeterminacy in democratic process that raises some fundamental engineering questions about how people should choose in groups, which is why I'm so indebted to Mel Hinnick in one of his last acts in recommending this as the way to motivate the book in the first place. All right, thank you all for coming. Let's uh, give appreciation for Mike Munger.